All right. Um, have you ever had something stolen from you? It's a pretty nasty feeling. Um, we've had uh, a car stolen early in our marriage. Not fun. Okay. Um, I've had my, my wallet stolen more than once, which means I've also had my identity stolen more than once. <laughs> actually had my Social Security card in the first wallet that was stolen. That was not smart. Don't carry your Social Security card in your wallet. Um, it's not a good feeling to know that something important or valuable is gone and you're probably not getting it back. Have you ever had that feeling? Last week in our text, Israel lost the most valuable thing they had. Physically. The most valuable thing they had. The Ark of the Covenant, gone. And humanly speaking, it should have been the end of their religion. I mean, how is it possible for an ancient civilization to lose their most valuable religious thing and continue to exist, how could an ancient God recover from something like that? I'd never thought about it that way, but as I got to thinking about this text, I was like, that's really what's going on. I mean, how do you lose the ark and continue to be a nation worshiping this same God? Let's find out. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Okay, So the glory of the Lord left Israel, we're told last week, and went to Philistia, which was the enemies to the west. And they set the ark up next to their own God, in quotes, as a trophy. Their purpose was to humiliate Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh. Okay, so that's why they set it up the way they did. Verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Okay, So the position of Dagon suggests that he is now worshiping Yahweh. He has fallen on his face before our God, before the ark. And in a very funny way, the people, the Philistines, have to pick Dagon up and put him back because he has no power. Because he's not real. You see that? Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So God takes this humiliating thing and He turns it back on the Philistines. The fact that 
their idol's head and hands were cut off signifies that Dagon is dead and powerless. He is dead and he is powerless. The message being clear. God is not going to share his glory with false gods. That's true of wooden and stone gods or idols. It's also true of the things that we worship today. Things like success and money. Things like control, popularity, entertainment. Even things like relationships or health. Right? God is never going to be okay sitting on our shelf next to all of our other idols. That's not okay with Him. The weight of God's glory is always going to crush other gods, He will cut them down. They will bow before Him. And it will crush us too. Watch what happens next. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And He terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Okay, so the Philistines make an observation here that I don't want us to miss. They say, his hand is hard against us. In other words, God is not easygoing. God is not taking it easy on them. He is being hard on them. Verse 6 calls God heavy-handed. The word heavy, which we discussed last week, it's that same word in Hebrew, kebed. God's glory rested heavy on His enemies. He literally afflicts them with a plague. Some people think this was the bubonic plague that God sent on the people of Philistia. And God doesn't need me, the pastor in the 21st century, to explain this away or to try to defend His actions. Okay, God sent a plague on these people. He's God. And that's what He did. And after that, the Philistines play sort of a game of hot potato with the ark. I'm not going to read all of it. But what they do is they send it from city to city. And each time, the people of that city were afflicted with this same disease. And then finally, after enduring it for seven months, they decide that trying to humiliate Yahweh was not worth it anymore. And so... They come up with this very strange plan of sending the ark back to Israel. Chapter 6, verse 2. 
The Philistines called for their priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. This doesn't sound like a bad idea, but it makes me wonder, why didn't they just repent and worship the true God? I mean, it's really obvious what's happening. It's really obvious their God doesn't have power. And the other God does. So why don't they just switch gods? There's something instructive here. Okay, Putting God at a safe distance is no better than putting Him on a shelf. Because we still think we're in control. And that's what's happening in the human heart in Philistia. They're choosing not to repent and worship the true God. They're going to send Him away. Verse 4. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to Him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box. At its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not then we shall know that it is not His hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So maybe they haven't learned the, the, the truth here, okay? This is a really interesting plan. What they're doing is they're testing to see if Yahweh is really punishing They know about what happened to the, Israel, uh, to the Egyptians. Did you notice that when we were reading? They know what happened with the plagues and Pharaoh hardening his heart. 
and they don't want to make the same mistake. So they decide that the way to do this is to test God. And they've really stacked the deck against God, okay? What do you think would normally happen if you separate two milk cows from their calves? Where do you think they're going to go? Home, right? They're going to go back to their calves. I mean, they very specifically said, get two milk cows upon which never has been a yoke, right? Milk cows don't pull carts. (laughs) So there's no logical reason why these two cows would start walking in the opposite direction from home which makes this sort of a joke. I mean, this is almost funny the way they set this up. But watch what happens. The two men did as they're told and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. I love that little phrase. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Okay? Brothers and sisters in Christ, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God let the ark be captured. And then, all by Himself, He got it back home. Literally needed no help. He doesn't need our help. We don't need to be worried about God's glory. He's got it covered. He has it taken care of. He does not need Mike. He does not need you. We need to be far more concerned or worried about our own response to this God. When the Israelites saw the cart coming down the road, the text says that they rejoiced because the ark was back in Israel. And that makes sense. And I wish that was the end of the story, but it's not. Okay? Verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a poor cows, right? As a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord He, that's God, struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great 
blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So, the chapter's building to this. This is the, this is the surprising part of the story. Okay? And I can't read this without thinking of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? And if I'm too old and you haven't seen that, forgive me. Uh, but the scene at the end of the movie, they open up, they found the ark, right? And they open it up. And um, the, the angel of the Lord just melts the faces off all the Nazis, right? Really strange, powerful scene. Um, but these aren't Nazis, okay? The ark is back in Israel. Why is God killing His own people? Again. Why is He still being heavy-handed? Because that's the purpose of this story. We expect Him to do it to the enemies of Israel. We don't expect this. And the short answer is because they get the ark back and then they immediately break at least three Levitical laws. Okay, They sacrifice cows instead of bulls. Broke a law. They parade the ark around instead of covering it like they're supposed to. Second law broken. And then some of them apparently, uh, we think, based on the text, were stupid enough to actually look inside the ark. And so God kills them. But the big picture here, I mean, that's, the, that's what they did. But the, the point is that God is holy. He may be their God, but He is still holy. And God is not okay with indifference to His holiness. Do you see that He was just as dangerous to the Israelites as He was to the pagans? God is not easygoing. In other words, God is not safe. Uh, all of our children have read, or we've read to them, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this great conversation between Susan and Mr. Beaver. The beaver is explaining to Susan that their king is a great lion named Aslan. And Susan is surprised to find out that Aslan is a lion because she assumed that their king would be a man. And so she's nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver if he is safe. And Mr. Beaver responds by saying, of course he's not safe. He's good but he's not safe. He's the king. We've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. And there are some really 
hard stories. There are some really um, interesting stories as we've gone through Judges and now Samuel. But please don't forget, this is the same God. God does not change. They were not worshiping a different God than we are. There is no difference between the character of this God and the character of Jesus. They are one and the same. Jesus is not safe either. Um, I've got a book in my office uh, by a guy named Jared Wilson. And the entire book is devoted to this idea that the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of our culture. The book is called Jesus, or Your Jesus is Too Safe. And in one chapter, he actually brings up the Ark of the Covenant. And he says that the Ark represented the glory of God, the presence of God, and the judgment of God in the midst of His people. That's what the Ark represented. But Jesus, Jared says, was actually the glory, the presence, and the judgment of God walking among His people. What the ark represented, Jesus actually was, is, right? And Jesus was nothing less than verbally abusive to the religious leaders of His day. Jesus drove businessmen out of the temple with a whip. Jesus revealed to us God's grace and His patience and His compassion as well. Absolutely. But Jesus was no less than the glory of God walking among us. And we've got to get used to this idea that God, the God of the Bible, is both holy and merciful. He is both just and gracious. And we actually do see both of those things in 1 Samuel. These people were all guilty of either rejecting God or treating Him with indifference. They tried to humiliate Him or they ignored His instructions. Which means, justifiably, things could have been much worse. But instead, what God chose to do is He wrote a story for us that's been preserved for a few thousand years. This story again bears the marks of Jesus. And I want you to see it because it's so beautiful to me when you, when you unpack it. And I, I love the Old Testament for that reason. Like every little thing, it's like you can figure out how it connects to Jesus. Listen to this, okay? They mishandled the glory of the Lord and so did we. The wrong sacrifices were made on that day. But one day God's Son would be sacrificed in our place. They put the ark on display on top of a great stone just as God's Son would be placed high on Calvary among criminals. 
they tried to humiliate the God of Israel. And at that time, God didn't let it happen, but one day He would. Our Lord Jesus suffered the humiliation of the cross, which is how it's described. The false god Dagon fell before the ark, heads, head and hands cut off, dead and powerless. And brothers and sisters, how did Jesus Christ appear? See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flowed, mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow me, or thorns compose so rich a crown? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The cross is the only place that the holiness and grace of God makes sense side by side. How can a holy God deal with people like me? I deserve the plagues. I deserve to be struck down for my indifference, for what really amounts to my rebellion, for my idolatry. Do you see how the story reads the pagans were no different? Really? In the end, what are the people of Beth Shemesh? They're like, hey, let's send it somewhere else. They do the same thing. Who can handle the holiness of this God? It's your God. It's your God. Maybe get it right instead of sending it on somewhere else. But that's just it. That's, that's, that's us. We are in the same need as the pagans. Do you know your heart? In the end, God is not okay with our idols. Okay, Whether we are pagans or whether we are His church. And God is not safe. The cross shows us how serious God is about our sin. He must be pretty serious about it if it meant the death of His only Son. If dealing with your sin and my sin meant the death of His only Son, God must be pretty serious about sin. More than that, God's anger for sin fell on Jesus. Can you see that? God was heavy-handed with His own Son for us. He did not go lightly on Jesus. Okay, The cross is like, if you think God is easy going, the cross destroys that notion, right? Heavy-handed. His own Son, who had done nothing wrong. That's the plan of salvation that we are here to celebrate. He is not safe, but He is good. Listen, I don't know where you stand before God today. I don't know what your situation is with Him. 
I don't know what you think of him, but I do know what he thinks of you. Not specifically you, but I know that you fall into one of two camps. You are either safe in Jesus this morning or you are not safe at all. And Jesus is offering us free of cost, okay? No no bargaining required, no righteousness required. There's no entrance fee to the kingdom, right? There's no cover charge here. The only way to avoid the heavy hand of God is to receive Jesus empty-handed. That's it. I can't give you anything else, right? If I try to overcomplicate this or speak too much to it, it confuses you. Trying to earn God's grace is the same thing as rejecting it. God is either going to be heavy-handed with you or you will receive Jesus with empty hands. That's it. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, fairest of all, the Prince of Glory, we thank You that You took what we deserve in our place. We cannot earn it. We can only receive it. And Father, I pray that You would give us grace to receive it now. We do not deserve Your love. Nothing we ever do could replace or add to it. You are our hope. You are our living hope. And we rejoice in You alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.